Welcome back to the Fostering Financial Victories podcast. My name is Eric Mazel. I'm your host today. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we're going to talk through some of the more common uh, questions that have been posed to us in, inside of our firm and also through this podcast over the last eight or 10 months. A lot of it is real estate oriented. So I am joined today by Morgan Coleman, realtor here in Greenville with Sotheby's. That's correct. And Caleb Legrand, backed by popular demand from all of our <laughs> listeners here. So Caleb is with the CL team of Mortgage Group. Um, guys, give everybody a quick uh, snippet of kind of how you got to where you are and what you do on a daily basis before we kind of get into this. Yeah, in real estate and how I got into real estate, I thought about it when I put, graduated college and I realized no one is going to buy or sell a house from a 22-year-old kid. So we <laughs> went into coaching for a while, played soccer in college, and then I was lucky enough to have some time of reflection and realize that real estate really is a great career path and realize that I'm pretty good at it. And I enjoy meeting people, helping guide them through that process. And that's kind of how I got started and how things are rolling. So played at Clemson, right? I did. All right. What you got, Caleb? So I got into mortgage banking in 06, coming out of being a frustrated accountant. So I got in right at the tail end of the crash, which was perfect, perfect timing. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. I really enjoy what I do. So my job primarily consists of helping clients structure their debts to ensure that they take advantage of long-term wealth goals and help them put that financing together for their largest indebtedness. And it's just really fun. I mean, you think about what we deal with, it's everyone's hopes, dreams, wishes are all tied up in the word home and family. So it's by and large, mostly a positive experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Very cool. All right. So before we get into all the questions, I know real estate, the market in general has been probably the most, uh, Combustible, Fun. maybe. <laughs> um, give everybody a quick rundown of what you're seeing in the maybe the upstate market or just in the, the general real estate world right now. And we are uh, September the 9th, if everybody's wanting to know when this was recorded. Yeah, sure. So the real estate market is very busy. And we kind of hear the words seller's market, buyer's market. What does that mean? Traditionally in a seller's market, we're under six six months of inventory we've dipped down to as low as two months of inventory wow. and around uh, june 15th there are a little over 1200 active listings as of september 7th there's a little more than 3300 active listings okay so we are seeing an uptick in the market which is a positive we're seeing some more listings not every single price point is in a seller's market we're seeing a lot of activity a lot of competitiveness and under that 350 mark and under it's really competitive you have to act fast but as the price point goes up it's not necessarily that competitive so it just depends on the price point but inventory is coming up a little bit which is a positive thing to see cool yeah i'm dovetailing into that so you know housing has been up about 12 percent year over year here in the past 12 months so clients that bought 18 and prior are of course sitting on an enormous amount of equity but starting to see days on market expand so that's not a bad thing we need that because we can't handle year-over-year 12-month year, appreciation. We're going to price people out. Affordability will become a real issue. So seeing that leveling off, and you know, I want to make sure the audience takes care, a leveling off or a deacceleration of appreciation is not a crash. You know, when you go from we're going 12% year-over-year, now we just drop back to our normal average of say 3 or 4%. That's good. That's healthy. That's what we need. And seeing days on market start to expand. So hopefully we'll get to a point where buyers may be able to see a house twice before they actually make an offer on it yeah. as opposed to, hey, that just hit the market. You got till five o'clock to get your offer in. How much above asking do you want us to submit? And so, you hadn't seen it. And, and, you, and if you're lucky, you might see it when you close. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think those are positives in the market at the moment. I wouldn't see that as a negative. So, 
So, Caleb, last time you were here on yeah. the show was back in 2019. No, it was 2020, right at the start first of 2020. Quarter, yes, first quarter um, of 2020 and the world was and, coming into end. And some of the big changes that happened with you uh, in your world was the uh, moratorium on, on mortgage uh, payments and from the renting side of things, kind of the eviction, you know, can't, can't kick can't anybody kick out. out. Um, have you seen anything like a ripple effect with that yet? I know there's been a lot of stuff in the news on what the CDC kind of came out and talked about with, with that moratorium recently, but what are you seeing there? Uh, honestly, it was a very successful program, which is amazing to say about something that the government intervention did, but it was actually very successful. We kept a lot of people in their houses. We're not going to see this huge rash of foreclosure that everybody keeps predicting. So the forbearance is actually ending at the end of this month. Okay. So virtually everyone who was in forbearance now has to come out of it. And where I think the last number they had, there was 1.7 million homeowners still in forbearance, if I remember correctly. Most of those clients, if you look over 90% of them are at least 10% equity or greater in their homes. So you're not going to see this huge rash of foreclosure because if that client is unable to perform and make their payment, they're just going to sell their house, which is great because we have an inventory shortage problem. So that will only help accommodate what we're already experiencing. So the forbearance program in and by itself did work out very well. Most of those folks have reestablished. A lot of them refinance when rates drop. In order to refinance, you had to reestablish payments for a minimum of three months anyway. So a lot of folks who went into voluntary forbearance came back out of it, made their three payments drop their debt burden. So the American consumer as a homeowner is sitting very, very pretty at the moment. Renters, you know, are the ones who are probably going to be more at risk. Those would be folks that are usually on the lower income level and coming out of that moratorium, we may see more evictions. I don't anticipate that'll have a huge negative impact on the actual housing market though. Okay. So the, one of the main questions that we've been asked a lot uh, would it be better to, in this current setting, rent, buy, or build, or none? Right. Say where you are. Like what? What are y'all <laughs> Stay in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are you thinking? That's a great question. I think it's uh, situational for each individual. I think renting has its place, and like Caleb just mentioned, lower income. You have to bring more money to the table when you buy. There's things that you need to consider. Building. There's a spectrum of that. You can get in on a spec home or you can buy the land get a construction loan land loan and then actually build exactly what you want which that comes at a price as well so it really depends on your financial situation i think what is the number one thing to do is to get with a local lender like caleb because they'll be able to look at your financials and really tell you hey this is your debt to income ratio hey you have some credit card debt that we really need to take a look at and clear that first before you were to ever leave your renting situation and I think if you're a renter and you're considering buying, educating yourself is the number one thing and being prepared. And even if, like, for example, I had a potential client reach out last week and their lease is up in March. And she goes, I know it's so early to even have this conversation. And I said, no, it's not. It's absolutely not. And I said, let's backtrack here. And I said, you know, let's meet the end of this month. Let's get you connected with a lender. Let's start seriously start looking in November, December, get something under contract, close sometime in January, then your first mortgage payments in March. It's really not that soon to sure. start having these conversations. So being prepared, building yourself around people that can educate you, that can look at your financials, that have your best interest in mind is, is really key. Okay. So with rent, um, I assume rent has kind of went out 
a little bit out of the stratosphere as well over the last 18 months. I know it's been average hot, rent in at the end of green in 2020. So this is a little bit dated, but average rent in 2020 was 12.97 a month. Okay. Now that's up 10% year over year from 19. So you can assume we probably saw some sort of a similar increase for 2021, but it's really getting to the point where you know renting and buying are getting somewhat at parity. In our market, it was less expensive to rent for a very long period of time because rents were grossly underneath that mark, national average. With rents spiking, with a lot of folks relocating here, that's probably getting closer to leveling out. Okay. But I would 100% agree with Morgan. It is always situational. You know, if you're going to be moving in a couple of years, it's really hard to justify a purchase. You're not really going to be there long enough to see the benefit of it yeah. unless you just absolutely steal the home, and that's not likely in the current market. So I would say your time is going to make a big difference. But from just the number standpoint, the ownership of home is still that last great tax shelter and also last great wealth tool. From the builder's perspective, you know we all saw what the supply line did uh, <laughs> the last you know, few months, and I've noticed that that has started to kind of settle back down. You know, the the building I would think saw a massive increase in in you know cost, right? And it's yes. going to lay out like you mentioned the spec home my neighborhood right now i think there's four houses being built by mm -hmm. a, a local builder they're all spec houses i can't imagine what they're going to have to sell it for to mm -hmm. get their money back out of the just the expense of the, the material because when they bought all that right. um yeah. you know what what do you think from a, a timeline on when you'll start to see some of that somewhat level off i, I assume it's going to be pretty quick but it's got to take time to get through the system i think it's already happened think honestly so? yeah so we had so a lot of builders if you paid attention to the news you saw it in the media we a lot of our builders put contracts on pause. So they literally stopped taking contracts in March and many of them went on a 30, 60, 90 day freeze of, we just can't price anything, so we're not going to price it. So they would start building the home, get the materials, get it to sheetrock stage. And that's where, you know, at most 60, 65% of the materials are in and they know what the cost is and then the rest of it's usually on order so they can effectively price a home but we had builders that were finishing houses in that time frame that lost money because mm -hmm. they couldn't control the costs fast enough and they couldn't raise the price enough to cover it. But I would say by and large, and being out in the field with a lot of them here in the last 30, 60 days, supplies and materials are less of a concern. Now we're back to more of the availability of dirt and the availability of labor, which was the constraints we had going into 2020 already anyway. And that's, that's not gonna disappear. So stay on this topic a little bit, and I'm going to dig into it. The the buying of land, um, obviously, land is a you know, doesn't they don't make any more of it. <laughs> yeah, they can't manufacture it. Yeah. So just the, can you kind of talk through what the difference is on how someone would just approach buying property versus buying an already built home as it relates to timing or financing or what's different? It really depends. Yeah, I was <laughs> say it depends. I think it. Because of the inventory, people are looking at the new builds, they're looking at the land options and the building options if they have time. Some people, you know, live in a current existing single family home and they say, okay, I need the equity out of this home, so I'm going to go rent for a little while while we build. Mm -hmm. Some people don't have to sell that current home and they can stay in there for as long as they want and then they can go build. I think it depends on what they're looking for. I think COVID has changed a lot of people's needs and necessities with where they live and, you know, hey, and now I'm homeschooling my kids or now I need a home office. It's really just changed the game. And so there's a lot of different things that come with land. Is it subdividable? Can I, do I need to do a teardown? 
tear down, tearing down a home does not cost as much as some people would think, but there's some things that go into it that you're like, okay, here are the processes, meeting with a local builder that you trust is really important. But I think it just, if you have the time to do it, you can get exactly what you want, which is what you know ultimately people want, right? Yeah. But um, I think with COVID, it's definitely opened the doors for that. And I think because they don't make land, much land anymore, yeah. it has created kind of a frenzy on that because there's only so much of it as well. So, so much, only so much inventory and only so much land. Is there a um, amount of land that changes the financing game? as far as acreage goes? Not really. So, I mean, from a financing standpoint, it needs to be reasonable and customary for the area. So an extreme example would be if you're in a subdivision where the average lot is half an acre and you're trying to buy, say, 12 acres within that same subdivision, that would be unreasonable and uncustomary for that area. So what would that do to the the financing? That's where you would have to determine how is this going to be structured. So at that point, the land would probably be an excessive value in relation to the property which would then turn it into a land loan, and you would have to have a different set of financing for that than, say, traditional conventional financing or things of that nature. But okay. if you're just the average Joe says, hey, I want to buy some dirt, you know, there's plenty of options with local banks and credit unions for land loans. On average, you're going to have to put down somewhere between 15 to 40 percent, depending on where it is and what it is. And the, the rates on that aren't horrible. You know, the average rate on that for someone with reasonable credit is going to be between 5 and 8 percent. So it's not unattainable. So if you're that individual, say you've got a house now and you're thinking, hey, I'm going to build in two or three or five or 10 years and you find an attractive opportunity to buy a piece of land, certainly take that down. You can sit on it for a while and use that potentially as your collateral or your down payment when it comes time to actually build. But to dovetail on the building thing, I think the primary benefits of building right now is that you're not having to compete. So if you look at any resale home right now, it is no exaggeration that everything in the market selling between 100 to 103% list to ask, meaning they're getting all what they're asking for or sometimes well over what they're asking for. Building allows you to go in in a non-competitive environment. Now you're gonna pay top dollar because you're not gonna get a discount, mm-hmm. but you're not having to say, I gotta pay 50 grand above asking just to go in this property. Right. And you get it the way you want, and it's brand new, and you can do everything you want the way you want. So I think there's a lot of attraction for new construction compared to resale right now, because resale is just so, so, so competitive. Once that levels off, I think you could see where you get back to more of that traditional, a resale home used to be about 90% of what you would pay for a new build. Right now they're running parity, you know, equal to one another, or you're paying a little bit of a premium for resale because it's moving ready. Right. And you got to compete with seven other people that want to buy the same get, house. You get those folks coming from down up north or west coast where exactly it's right. the cheapest home they've ever seen. Exactly and right. They throw a ton of money at it. Yeah. So that is a real thing, especially in our market. It's not negative 20 degrees. It's yeah. not negative yeah. 20 degrees. Yeah. They don't need no in a snowblower. So yeah. Yeah. You can golf year round. I there mean, you go. it's, yeah. it's got well, a lot of positives. Don't be telling people all this stuff. <laughs> um, okay. All right. So turn a little bit of the conversation more towards their investment property side of things. So we've gotten a lot of questions about how do you go about maybe identifying types of investment properties? Um, what are some intricacies there that people need to be aware of as it relates to either uh, the financing side of it or the buying side of it? Um, whether it's a single family home or a multi-family home, like kind of thinking through that. You want me to talk about that one? It's really going to come down to numbers. So, I mean, the thing about a a primary residence, it is going to be your home, which carries all the connotation that conveys with home. An investment property is just that. It's an investment. And so it just comes down to return and and what are you going to get from it? And there's really two ways to play that. It's either 
an appreciation play where you're saying, I'm going to buy this property. I may be cash flow neutral or even cash flow negative sometimes with the expectation it's going to go up in value enough over my period of time that I will make a sufficient return on it when I sell it. The other option would be to have a cash flow positive property where you're looking at it just like you would a dividend on a stock. Sure. So I pay a thousand bucks a month in my mortgage, I get fifteen hundred bucks in rent, that five hundred dollar spread is my profit on that. The house may not go up in value a lot, but I'm getting a good cash flow return on it. I would say single family residences, like a true standard home that most of us are used to, those are really probably gonna be more of an appreciation play. It's difficult to make those cash flow in the sense of it's very hard to get that where you're going to have a reasonable spread on your rent for that to justify that. So you're looking at it as I'm going to buy this, I'm going to sell this in five years and hope that depreciation offsets my carrying costs. For multifamily, that would be really more of a cash flow play because mm -hmm. you've got multiple streams of revenue coming in from that single debt burden and that usually is profitable from a cash flow perspective. So that's really the two ways that I think an individual would play it and then you know, you're going to need some money to be in that space. You're going to have to put down anywhere between 20 to 30 percent of the purchase price. Rates would be a little higher on an investment property than a rental property, but it's a great inflation hedge because you're buying with today's dollars. If you believe that all of the funds and liquidity we've injected in the system are going to create future inflation, you'll get to pay it back with tomorrow's dollars and with that renter's dollars. So I think real estate is a wonderful investment just comes down to the numbers. I mean, it's really simple. It's math. Yeah. Yeah, and the amount of people that I speak with and they say, I wish I would have kept that house I bought <laughs> 20 years sure. ago. Sure. I hear that almost <laughs> weekly. And uh, it's one of those things where you're, you know, especially with where the market is now, they're like, I could have made a killing on that those rental properties that I used to own or the, my first or second home that I used to rent out. And you don't know what you don't know, right? Sure. But um, so if you have a property, hold on to it if you can, just because the appreciation value, like Caleb said, is is, is really just rising. And you know, I'm, my first house that I bought, I still own, <laughs> and I plan on holding on to it for a long while, just because of the area that it's in, the appreciation that it's getting. But it's a, uh, it's hard to not know. But it's I hear that quite often. <laughs> All right. So I know this is a loaded question, um, and it's okay if you don't want to answer it um, but I think people find it interesting so Greenville has had a significant growth rate over the last decade where's the next area in Greenville that gets all the attention <laughs> this is gonna That's put on your projection hat because when I moved here in 08 it looks way different than what it looked like now yeah um, growing up here I mean I grew up in Simpsonville <clears throat> in the Five Forks area and we had an El Jalisco and an Arby's and that's all we had <laughs> and that's all we ate and to go downtown was a treat that was you know oh you know parents drop you off kind of deal big deal now Simpsonville and Five Works it's its own town you don't have oh, yeah. to go downtown to go to a brewery or a nice restaurant or take your kids somewhere fun I think just we're expanding and expanding and expanding and people don't have necessarily have to go to downtown Greenville to have fun or go on a date night or do things like that. I think the growth of, you know, the West Greenville area is absolutely booming and like the Berea area out to like Saluda Lake area is growing a lot and, you know, Piedmont, Powdersville, I mean, those areas that people don't necessarily realize, oh, you're 13 minutes, minutes from yeah. downtown. I mean, you're so, so close. 
I think those areas are really seeing a lot, easily seeing a lot. If people are like, easy, that's so far. No, no, it's not. It's right down the road. So yeah. I think we're just expanding out. And I think with you know the 74,000 plus people that have moved to Greenville, people are realizing, oh, I, I'm from you know New York or California, a, an hour commute, that's yeah. a piece of cake. So a lot of my buyers in the past year, most of them aren't even from the state of South Carolina. And I'm so used to hearing from local buyers is I have to be in this subdivision and this school district. Now people are saying, I just want to be within 25 minutes, 30 minutes of my job or downtown. Sure. And it just broadens that scope. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And someone being local like myself, I find a lot of hometown pride and people coming here and falling in love with it. So I think it's just expanding and people's what they need is a little bit different. They don't have to have something very, very specific or in a specific area. So I think just growth overall. I, I, I agree. I think it's going to be, I think like Simpsonville by Forts is moving out towards Belton very quickly because it was out that yeah. way with some friends not oh, that yeah. long ago. And I thought Belton was like the end of the world. And Belton's great. as I'm driving out there, I'm like, there are a lot of very high end homes being yes. built out that way. So with the, I think one of the biggest fallouts from COVID is the ability to be geographically independent and the expectation that it's going to continue the remote work, work from home. Now folks are looking, I want a little bit of land. I want a bigger house, which is interesting because we had shrunk a little bit after yeah. the fallout and now we're going back the opposite direction very quickly where houses are ballooning back up in size. But if you think about it, you need a school, you need a Zoom closet, you need an office, yeah. Yeah. you need yeah. all these things in your homestead and right. you're not really going out anymore. So I th we're seeing a larger push out to what would have been more fringe areas because they can get larger lots mm -hmm. where they get a little bit of acreage and land. So I think those areas are going to really see some fast and rapid growth. The nucleus of Greenville, like a Malden and some of those more central areas, they're really built out. There's no more dirt. So, I mean, there's really not a whole lot of opportunity there anymore. That's where you're competing with everybody else trying uh, to uh, get into a certain uh, neighborhood. You know, it's like trying to buy downtown Greenville on the most desirable street. You know, yeah. there's no more houses being built. This one's for sale. The 14 people that want to buy it, they all just showed up. Yep. Okay. All right. So, Morgan, with folks as they list their homes, mm -hmm. um, as quickly as they are selling lately, Yes. Um, I would think that puts some people in a quick bind if they're not able to find that next home quite as fast. Yes. Or if they get outbid all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. um, talk through what you've seen. Yeah. There are <laughs> Tears in the right? <laughs> Yeah. Basically, you sold your house and now you're inadvertently yes. homeless. Uh, I have a lot of clients that say, I would love to sell my home. Yeah. I'd love to take advantage of the market, but I have nowhere to go. It's kind of the conversation that we have pretty consistently with, with potential sellers. There's certain, certain situations where it's a job relocation or something where I have to sell because I have to move. A lot of sellers right now are saying, I'm just gonna see what I can get right now and I'll take care of the back end later. Just deal with and it. And just deal with it. And I always <laughs> want people to be prepared. Talk to someone like Caleb, what are your options when you're looking to sell and buy do you have to sell in order to buy if you do like here are your options i think people um are also realizing i've lived in my home for 20 years this was my lifestyle this is where my kids grew up those kids are out of the way we're empty nesters we can go live in a, a condo downtown or we can you know we don't have to have that single family home so your options are larger mm -hmm. so you say condo apartment 
you can townhouse, but go build. I mean, people are looking at things a little bit differently just because their needs are different and it's not like, okay, my kid has to be in the school district now. It's, hey, that'd be fun to go live in a condo downtown while we're empty nesters and our kids are in college. So people's situations are different. I think just being prepared is important. I always try to tell people, hey, when you're a seller right now, you kind of hold a lot of the cards. So you can say, hey, we can rent back. We'd like to do that. Or we don't. We want a minimum 45-day close, minimum 60-day close. If someone wants your house enough, they will meet your criteria. Now, price, obviously people want to price it as high as they possibly can. They want as much as they possibly can for their house. But me just taking a seller you know, price, hey, I'm going to throw this on the wall and see what happens, that's not doing a client service. So it's creating, you know, the data to say, hey, here's what your current market is saying. Here's what your house is worth. We always say an up to price. We can, you know, at the end of the day, the seller, what they want for their home is up to them. But I'm going to provide you with the data and the market will speak for it. Sure. If it's priced too high, people aren't going to come see it. People are going to come see it. They're going to say it's priced too high. So the market will speak for it, but the amount of preparation and data going into a listing is super important and, and sellers need to read through that and educate themselves and say, okay, this is what the market is saying and, and this is what my house is worth. Okay. So, Caleb, we, we talked a little bit about- I don't um, list houses. No, I know. <laughs> uh, you just get them paid for, kind of, right? Um, first time home buyers that are looking in this general market right now, as competitive as it is, what would you give those folks as some advice, just general counsel on how can you prepare yourself to be as ready as you possibly can to take action quickly, but not get um, maybe taken advantage of by paying too much? I don't know if that's a, even yeah, a yeah. fair way to say it, but. I don't really think there's a lot of risk for that right now in terms of overpaying for a house. I mean, you can always certainly do that, but I don't think that's the biggest struggle. I would say the message I would send to first time home buyers, I would definitely sit down with local professionals, you know, Morgan, myself, whomever, and get an understanding of what's gonna be entailed. Cause it's, it's very difficult for first time home buyers right now. And they are the largest cohort of what's coming out. So first time home buyers are about 41% what's going on in the market right now. The challenge is the types of financing that they are using, which is gonna be lower down payments, government finance, back financing is not seen as attractive in a listing scenario. So yeah. they're having to make a lot of offers and no exaggeration, you know, we had a client just a couple weeks ago, he's on his 15th offer that he had not won. This is a first time? This is a first time home buyer. He's Man. been looking for a house for six months, had made 15 offers, had not yet gotten his offer accepted. And you know, the first five or seven offers were probably not great offers because everybody thinks they're gonna get a deal. And you're not right now as a first time home buyer, you're not. You're going to be paying full asking. You're not gonna get any help on seller concessions right now. So you're gonna have to be prepared to come in and you're gonna be paying top dollar and you're gonna have to have a little bit of money to work with. You're gonna have to have a down payment. You know, you're gonna need on average for most of your typical buyers, somewhere between 12 to as much as $20,000 to take down an average price home of 280 or less in our market right now. So make sure that you either talk to the bank of mom and dad upfront, because gifts are totally allowed. So you know, you've got wealthy parents, or even parents who have some cash that they're willing to help you with, totally allowable, can totally do that. You know, save some money up, we can look at a 401k loan, things of that nature to come up with that money. But I think it's a tremendous time to buy, because if we look at the overall underlying demographics of what's gonna happen here over the next three or four years, it's gonna continue to, to go up. There's really nothing on the event horizon that's gonna say, housing's gonna crash, or we're gonna see a reversal of the market. So I think it's a wonderful time to step into the market if you're confident you're gonna be in the area. 
to buy something that will build true long-term wealth. You're controlling an asset. Let's just say it's a $280,000 average price home in our market. You can control that asset for fifteen or twenty thousand dollars and enjoy all of the upside appreciation of that. So, you know, those folks that bought in nineteen, that house went up ten percent. Yeah. I mean, that's twenty eight thousand dollars. That's not hard math. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good return on yeah. a one year investment. Not bad. I'd take it. So <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So you said forty one percent of buying your average first time buyer yeah, right your now. average first time home buyer and this has actually been fairly static for the last two decades is between 32 and 33 years old if you look the largest group of individuals coming to market is the millennial generation and if we go back 32 33 years and we look at the number of birth it's like this sure all the way through basically 2025 so there's a huge swath of those clients coming through getting ready where they're at that stage in their life where they're forming households, they're getting married, they're having children, you know, they're getting more stable in their jobs. So that is a huge demographic that's coming online that's going to provide a lot of demand. And that's why you've seen housing surge so much because that cohort of buyers is here. They're here now. We've been talking about them for a they decade. Have, they have a job. They have a job. They got money. And they're actually super qualified despite what the media will tell you. They're actually really financially savvy. They've done by and large, a great job of saving money because they came out right in the middle of the world falling apart. Yeah. So you think about, you came out in 06, 08, 09, you had a really crappy job market. They've seen kind of the worst of what it could be. So most of them have saved cash. They're pretty disciplined. They don't have a ton of debt. So they're pretty qualified. So despite what people will tell you, you know, that's, they're not a bunch of slackers. Do you have statistics on who is the largest uh, population of those who are selling? It's not who you think. So it's not, so the expectation was, as we got a little closer to the baby boomer generation coming of age, you know, the expectation was they're going to all sell their houses. That's who I would think it would be. This silver wave, COVID really derailed a lot of that with the failures of assisted living and homes like that, that were trying to keep those people safe. A lot of those clients have said, oh, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm staying in place. They're spending massive amounts of money to age in place or stay at home with right. in-house care and things of that nature. So it's really not that older demographic that you would have expected. It's people our age. And what has surprised me, and Morgan, you can speak to this, I've been surprised at how quickly I've had clients turning houses over. So, you know, the old, oh, we're never moving again. Like if I had a yes. nickel for every time I heard that, I'd already been retired. Yes. But <laughs> we, what we used to have where clients were staying in their homes seven, 10, 15 years, we had multiple clients just in the last 12 to 24 months two years i'm flipping my house buying something else and a lot of that's just because house went up 20 percent. they can take that equity they can roll it into the really really want house and we'll see if that continues but that's been my experience i don't know what you've seen in the last couple no that's exactly exactly right you know i have a lot of clients that said this well we thought this would be our forever home (laughs) and i'm like there there's no such thing as a forever home yeah your your needs change you know life Things happen, death, marriage, baby, like things happen and think your your necessities change. And so I have a lot of clients that are saying, you know, I had someone message me the other day on Instagram that was like, hey, we, you know, bought a year ago, but we're, you know, with the way the market is right now, like we really don't want to be here. Our jobs are now fully, we're working from home. We want to be here. And they said, we never expected that to happen. And mm. of course, a ton of us didn't expect this, any of this to happen. So needs have changed and people are moving quicker and sooner. And 
it's it's a population that I don't think a lot of us necessarily expected, but they're here and you know this like Kayla said, the five, seven, ten year you know isn't not really what we see a lot right now. But seven years isn't that typically the average, average. expectation? Actually, first time homebuyers keep it about seven point two years. If you look statistically, your second or third home, we've actually increased the amount of time we've been staying in space. This is a little bit of contradiction of what we were just sharing. Prior to twenty twenty, the tenure in a home had actually increased to 15 years wow. and if you think about that that's because back like let's say in the 90s if you wanted a promotion or something of that nature technology wasn't there to support you working here and yeah. communicating with the west coast you had to make a physical move to kind of climb the ladder nowadays it's going to be hey eric we're opening up a new office in california you're gonna have a zoom call on thursday with your team say hi so you don't have to necessarily relocate so i think we're seeing a great shift of people relocating to get more where they really wanted to be because the proximity to work is not as important. And I think once that settles down, that's probably where we'll see a return to staying in the home for a longer tenure of time because now they have what they want and it serves their needs at that time, mm -hmm. unless we see a huge swing back where they make everybody go back into the office, which who knows. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So one of the more fun questions that we were asked to get clarity on, is it worth anything to put a pool in your backyard <laughs> anymore i get that question uh, almost daily uh because I'll before let, i'll let more give you the realtor perspective it, and i'll give you the yeah. answer from the appraiser so that's yeah. what i want that's yeah. what i want to hear because before it was always kind of a net neutral from what yeah. i understood people want pools so they're putting some value on them now people yeah so no. <laughs> well, so <laughs> yes no okay i think people and I keep going back to, you know, when we were quarantined and things like that, people's needs have changed. And so people's people fear, what if we go back into another lockdown? Yeah. You know, I need more space for my kids to run around. I want to be by, by the pool I like if, that. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to be quarantined at home. So I think people, their idea, like some years ago, I don't want anything to do with the pool. Now it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to, you know, move into a new home, more land and there's a pool, that's a positive for us, me and my family. So I think needs and mind shift has shifted a little bit on that. So I'd love to hear your perspective. So I agree with what she said from a demand perspective. Yeah. Buyers are a lot more attracted to all the things we wanted while we were locked down. Yep. I want a pool, I want a home gym, yes. I want a mother-in-law suite, I want a detached office. Mm -hmm. From a actual value on an appraisal standpoint, the answer is sadly no. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't changed there. It hasn't because the market's not necessarily paying up for it. So from okay. an appraisal standpoint, pool costs on average anywhere between thirty-five to fifty-five thousand mm -hmm. dollars to put in. What we'll see on an actual return of value on an appraisal is typically between five to $10,000 for that pool. And the reason for that is when an appraiser is doing their job, we got house A, we got house B, theoretically they're identical. Mm -hmm. The only difference was house B had a pool. They paid $10,000 more for house B, thus the pool is worth $10,000. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's not something that I would say put into a home because you're gonna get this a massive return on it. Yeah. It's for your personal enjoyment and use and that yeah. is hard to quantify. Yeah. And I think if somebody wants a pool, awesome. They're gonna yeah. pay more for it. If yeah. you don't want a pool, it's a turnoff. Yeah. Okay, so the follow-up question to this, during this last two year time frame, a lot of people did some upgrades and renovations to their homes as they were just sitting around looking at the walls all the day. <laughs> um, where would you say is the biggest bang for their buck on making upgrades or renovations to a, a current house that they're in? Zoom closet. A, Zoom closet. <laughs> a padded room? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kitchen, master bathroom. 
That's the biggest rate of return. Kitchen, bathroom, sell houses. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's literally that simple. Yep. Okay. Good answer. Quick answer. <laughs> yeah. All it's, right. And when you walk into a house, think about where you spend 80% of your time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right that's up. where people gather. And you walk into a home that an entire kitchen needs to be gutted, or you walk into a home where an entire kitchen has been absolutely renovated from top to bottom, you're probably going to go towards that, the renovated kitchen. Okay. And kitchens and bathroom cell houses. Mm -hmm. It's just, just that simple. Okay, great feedback. So I've reached the end of all the questions that I was given. Um, <laughs> so that's great. You guys did a fantastic job. Is there anything that you think we need to touch on that people would find interesting that we haven't covered? I mean, I think housing is just a wonderful investment opportunity. I think, you know, if you have the ability to afford a home, you should definitely buy it. And I don't say that as someone who does this as a professional. If you look at the long-term return for those who own homes, they will retire better and have a greater net worth and more satisfaction in their life for owning a home. So I would, I would encourage everyone to explore it if you're thinking about it. And I would say for those who are looking at investment properties, it's definitely something to talk about. Just understand it's not like television. You're not going to find three perfect homes and you're going to have this massive return. You know, you still get the phone calls at 2 a.m. in the morning when the toilet's broken. So right. make sure you're mentally prepared. Your stock's <laughs> not calling you saying, I need you to come repair me. That's true. Your house will. So yeah. just be prepared mentally to take that on. So. I still think it's a wonderful investment vehicle for clients. Cool. Yeah, my, I guess my piece of advice would be be proactive and be prepared. You know, over 44% of buyers aren't even pre-approved yet and they're <laughs> looking. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm happy to have conversations with clients who aren't pre-approved, but the best thing for you as a buyer is to talk to someone like Caleb, figure out where you are financially, because if that perfect house does pop up and you're not pre-approved, you're gonna have to Sorry move fast. about it. Yeah, you're, it's it, you don't you don't want to be in that position. You want to be proactive. You want to be prepared, just so you know. If day one, once you're pre-approved, that house hits the market, great. Day sixty, great. But you're educated. You're prepared, and, and kind of ready to go. Exactly. Okay. So last two things, um, Caleb, you've answered these questions before, but I'm gonna ask you again. So this is a question that everybody gets asked on uh, the podcast. Oh, so we're start with you. My answers. Um, last two things you spent money on. Mm. Caleb's gonna cheat now because he's here. Okay, the question. last two things: um, <laughs> gym supplements <laughs> <laughs> for the yeah, protein uh, protein bars and supplements. And let's see what else. The second thing might have to come back to me. I would think with the amount of dogs that y'all have, <laughs> golden retrievers, you would have to have like 12 vacuum yeah, cleaners. Three golden retrievers. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a Dyson. So you, just, okay, yeah. so you vacuum all the time? Yeah. Yeah. Vacuum bags. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Any, anything dog related, yeah. honestly, is, is, is always up there. I would there. think so. Yeah. Kelly, what about you? I mean, the last two major expenditures were we remodeled the house, so okay. we added an outdoor kitchen and then uh, upgraded the media room a little bit. So I mean, all that was right. probably the last thing I spent any real money on, you know, other than daily expenses. Cool. Yeah. All right, if you could buy anything in the world, regardless of how much it costs, what would it be? Wow. Oh my goodness gracious. I would say a home gym. Home gym. Would be my number I, one. I would second that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was something I greatly missed during COVID. Yeah. I would say it's a great investment. It is. There's yeah. only so much you can do. I know, you're going to make me jealous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a little while to get them, get them up and going. Yeah. yeah, for sure. All right, so guys, thank you for sharing some time with us today. If you could give everybody a chance to know how they can contact you and go ahead and plug your, yourself there. Go ahead. Yeah, you can call me at 864-313-7639. Email me at morgan at jha-sotheby'srealty.com.
Yeah, you can call me at 864-569-0741, or you can go online. It's just calebgrand.com to reach myself or the team, and we'd be happy to help in anything you would like to talk about. Cool. Well, guys, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions or suggestions on topics that you'd like for us to cover, you can email us directly from our website at fostervictorwa.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at fostervictorwealthadvisors. Please share this with someone who you think might find it interesting. And thanks again. See you guys soon. My pleasure. Information contained in this podcast was intended for general use, not to be used as specific advice. For content tailored to your personal situation, please contact one of our wealth coaches.